I think people picture God like in those control rooms in the movies, right? Where like, he, you know, he's just like looking at the map of the world and he's just like, zoom in now and I'll pay a little attention here. But instead you, you want that sense that God is so great, so infinitely great that his full attention, his full care and heart of compassion um, is, is right here. You know, right now as we're having this conversation when I'm in my moments of grief and sadness, and that doesn't actually then remove his ability to also be paying attention to all the other stuff. Welcome to the 32nd Book Club podcast, a place for people who want to read more books and be in a book club but don't have time to do either. I take care of that for you. My name is Andy, hanging out with Eric Tonjes today. He wrote a book called Either Way Will Be All Right, an honest exploration of God in our grief. And Eric, I know that this comes from a personal uh, place for you. So share a little bit more about your journey. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess coming up on six years ago now, but my wife was originally diagnosed with stage three cancer. We were in the middle of some life transitions, three little kids, and um, ended up uh, transitioning out to Illinois. We were living uh, in Nebraska, where we were originally from back then, but in the midst of that diagnosis. And then a couple years after that, her cancer recurred, at which point it's terminal. And so then we spent three years walking through just <laughs> that kind of valley um, of anticipating that and praying about that and processing that. And um, God was really gracious to us in giving us more time than we kind of expected after the terminal diagnosis. But yeah, then last year she passed away and I've been continuing to walk through kind of that new season of grief then after that with, um, yeah, and single parenting and widowerhood and all of the, the kind of strange things that, yeah, that I feel like I'm still kind of adjusting to now in this season. Hmm. And I, I just, I think right at the beginning of your book, I love how you just talk about how our culture just can't bear to look at death. And I th I'm guilty of this. And maybe you were too, before you went through this journey, when someone else is going through it, you think you almost, you almost always want to just, Hey, say, all right, oh, well, I'm sorry you're going through this, but Hey, at least this, or you always try to, I don't know, tie a bow on it. Like it's going to be better. And I'm sure, you know, people that are going through that grief process, that's not really what they want to hear at that time. Yeah. I mean, I always want to be careful first because it's hard to know what to say to people. Right. And I do want to like, um, you do want to just hear people's heart as much as you can, but yeah, it is interesting how much, like how both how hard it is for people to just name what you're going through. Um, I think I've said this in the book, but we used to joke about the, the new D word, because if you ever just said death or dying, people would just kind of like flinch back from it. And then also, yeah, there's a lot of challenges where people, rather than just saying, I mean, cause, cause ultimately what you should say is just like, this is terrible. This isn't how it's meant to be. I'm sorry. Right. I'm here, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. But, but yeah, so many people want to immediately move to these ideas of hope of, you know, God has a plan or, you know, he'll take care of you or whatever, which aren't untrue. And certainly like, as I've walked through the journey of grief, find there comes points where you kind of come to embrace and find comfort in those things. But especially when you're confronting it and just in the middle of the, the heaviness and sadness of it, those things tend to be pretty unhelpful. Yeah. And you talk about in the, uh, towards the beginning too, talking about entering grief. And I love this line that you said, maybe you can just uh, share a little bit more. While there is hope in Jesus, we can only experience that hope by entering the darkness. That's such a scary thought, I think, for so many of us to, to be willing to go into that unknown. Yeah, I, I think a lot about the Psalms and what are called the Psalms of Lament, which are 
a bunch of the Psalms are kind of expression, expressions of grief, sadness, anger, you know, struggle with God because of hard circumstances. And, and every one of them is unique, but most of them follow this pattern where they start with this very gut level, visceral, just admitting of how I feel and my anger and my anguish and my sadness and my brokenness. And they move through a process of ultimately arriving at hope and joy and and I think it's really important for Christians to recognize that it's not just the end point of that psalm that's important. I think what happens to a lot of us is we want to say we're supposed to like be at a place of hope and joy. And so we're, we're not going to let ourselves experience the things at the beginning. We're not going to let ourselves say these like you've crushed me, you've broken my bones, I'm worn out from my crying, my tongue is dried to the roof of my mouth. These kind of just like incredibly hard things that the psalmist says. But I feel like the only way to really to really arrive at a biblical sense of that hope is to really name and sit in and feel the, the darkness and hard parts of it too. And then from that place to move towards Jesus and experience his presence, you can't, you can't short circuit it. You can't like just jump to the destination without going on the journey through the hard parts. Hmm. And part of that journey. And of course we always say this and, and we always ask this question, but I, I love you. You, you uh, try to explain it a little bit at least if God is all good and all powerful, how can evil and suffering exist? The challenge with answering that question is always ultimately the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> right? right. And, um, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's kind of what like the book of Job is about on some level that, you know, Job wants to sit down and talk things through with God and he's confronted with God and has to ultimately say, you're just beyond me. What I tend to, to think is the best way to answer that biblically. I mean, again, there's, there's things you can say, and this is what's hard about the question about, our freedom and growth and God telling a story that ends in victory. But honestly, the place that I've arrived most days with people is just to say, I don't have a great answer to that question, but what scripture does is it, it owns the hardness of that question. And then next to it, it sets another reality, which is God's presence with us His entering into the world to suffer in Jesus Christ himself, kind of bearing the burdens of that grief and hardship and willingness to kind of, move through that and then ultimately work victory over that. And I feel like what that does is it says like, we're going to wrestle. We're still going to struggle at times. I do, you know, with the hardness and the brokenness of it, but there's this other reality that also makes me say like, even as I struggle with him, God's undeniably good and kind to me in these ways that are, that are really profound and that there's really nothing like anywhere else in the world. And I feel like maybe that's enough. Like that doesn't answer all of our questions, but at least for me, I'm able to say like, when I look at Jesus and when I see the ways that God moves towards me and, um, you know, the way that he suffers beside and for me, that, that, that allows me to kind of walk through that place, even though those other questions aren't entirely resolved. And I think as you, you know, and it was beautiful that you wrote this too. And I think that it kind of ties into what you just said too. Maybe you can just jump on it a little bit more, but grief isn't so much grappling with a thing as with the absence of a thing, it's a battle with nothingness. On one level, that's just an acknowledgement, I think, of this emotional reality that what's hard is that it's not this problem, at least for the kind of grief that I'm experiencing, right? There are things that cause anxiety and frustration and sadness that are sort of identifiable problems that you can game out and solve and that you can name to the Lord in prayer in terms of here's the resolution that I want. And what's been so what's so hard about grieving and especially facing death and loss and grief is that instead there's just this sort of disappearing of, of the thing. And so it's, 
yeah, it is an absence. So what happens is instead you're just moving through life and you kind of suddenly realize like, oh, like I especially noticed in the early months after she died, like some funny thing would happen or I, you know, or I do something and I'd like look up expecting to see Elizabeth, right. Wanting to just like share this with her. Cause for, you know, years we had done that and just be like, oh no, that's not here anymore. And so there's a real hardness then to confront that sadness because yeah, you can't just, you can't game that out, right? There is this thing that until the resurrection, obviously we have an ultimate hope as Christians, but that in this age, I've just lost this thing that includes this part of myself. And so I think a lot of that really speaks to the need for us to acknowledge that Jesus meets us in our need and Jesus in a, in a sense, like fills up what is lacking in us, fills up the, the void. That's all true. But there's this kind of, kind of overly optimistic, overly inspirational, you know, post on Facebook, whatever way of saying that, that isn't true. That like Jesus sustains me right and in that. And he is enough for me. He supports me. And there's, there's real beauty too in life, but that, that part of my experience is just going to be a wounded part of my experience always. And God can carry me through that. You can even work through that in good ways, but it's still, I mean, it's what Paul talks about with the thorn in the flesh, right? Like what's mm -hmm. so important about that thorn in the flesh, which is probably not grief. It's probably, you know, people speculate about that, but what's so important about that is that he specifically comes to God and says, take this broken thing away from me. And God says, no, right. <laughs> he just says, it's actually, I'm meeting you as this is a part of your experience of the world. And so, yeah, even, even as I continue to move forward and even as, I mean, as you journey with grief, you know, like I'm farther along now in a way that I'm thinking more about the future and with the kids. And it's not that initial trauma, just everything, you know, can't even get up in the morning, barely place. But there's still just this deep, consistent, like moments where it comes crashing in and um, and where you just have to, yeah, just have to name that with God. Speaking of your kids, you talk about it a little bit in the book. Um, how How did you approach you know, when your wife was diagnosed with cancer a second time and it was terminal and you realized, okay, now, now we have to have a different talk with our kids. How did that go? And, and you know, what's your advice, you know, for other parents and, you know, family members that have to try to explain loss uh, to younger kids? Yeah, I, we kind of operated out of two principles all along, which are one, I guess this is one of my foundational rules of parenting is you never lie to your kids, right? Mm -hmm. So, you never, you never say things that are untrue to them, but two, you also respect the fact that on some level, when dealing with hard things, the kid needs to take the initiative in terms of asking the questions and, um, and when they're able to, to process it, they'll ask and you answer honestly in, you know, gently, but honestly. So like, so what that meant, I mean, when Elizabeth originally got cancer, the kids asked as they processed it about her dying. And we said, well, there's real hope, you know, at that point, the diagnosis was, you know, like there's, you know, we're really hopeful, but if it comes back, then that means that unless Jesus chooses to do something miraculous that, yeah, that she will die from it. And so when it recurred, you could see them processing for a few weeks and we didn't bring it up, but then um, the older two at least asked about it. And so we just sat him down and we're like, yeah, I mean, mommy will die from this. It won't be tomorrow. Like kids' perceptions of times are such that you want to stress, like it won't be tomorrow or next week. But I think that's really important for a couple of reasons to, to, to have those honest conversations, even though, I mean, man, that was brutal. <laughs> we just, you know, wept after they left the room. But um, one is because 
one of the things this makes you confront about parenting is that you can't protect your kids from everything. Like just literally can't protect your kids from everything, right? There was no way that we could protect them from the eventual pain of this. And trying to pretend like we could was just going to make it way more painful. They were able to process that reality and think about it as, you know, ahead of time and ask questions. And yeah, in some ways they were more open about it than the adults around them were. I always remember we went on a walk like the next day I took the, the kids for a walk and we ran into some people that I knew in town and they asked how Elizabeth was doing. And immediately one of my kids piped up and was like, she's going to die from cancer. And they were just horrified, right? Like they didn't know what to do, but it was so important for my kids to be able to start naming and processing that. Mm -hmm. And then also specifically with that, naming it ahead of time and then answering all their questions. Kids really need the security of just knowing like there's a plan, you know, like knowing that I was still going to be there and for them and knowing that they weren't going to lose everything, even as they had to navigate that one loss. So, yeah. Uh, In the chapter, God in our midst, you say that one of the problems we can have in how we picture God is that we place God's bigness and nearness in opposition to each other. The thing about God is that we, we feel this tension where we want to exalt his greatness and talk about his greatness, right? And he knows everything and rules over everything. And the Lord is enthroned in the heaven and, and rules over all. But we do that in a way that makes him feel distant, I think. And oftentimes then to try to make him feel close, we end up denying or minimizing those realities. But scripture, I think the way I always think about it is just that like you push God up to this big dimension and then you just keep pushing even more so, right? So God is so big, so great that like he fills up the universe and then keeps filling it and pressing inward instead of pressing outward more and more so that there's a sort of sense in which he's he's fully present right now with me, right? And fully giving me his attention. And he's also so big that he's able to do that with everyone else. But I think that's really important because when you have that sort of like, I think people picture God like in those control rooms in the movies, right? Where like, he, you know, he's just like looking at the map of the world and he's just like, zoom in now and I'll pay a little attention here. But instead you, you want that sense that God is so great, so infinitely great that his full attention, his full care and heart of compassion um, is, is right here, you know, right now as we're having this conversation when I'm in my moments of grief and sadness, and that doesn't actually then remove his ability to also be paying attention to all the other stuff. Mm. Such a good reminder, I think, for people that are going through that time of grief. And um, I loved also that when you were in the chapter talking about wrestling and resting, you say that the greatest spiritual danger in grief is not our despair or our anger, but our surrender. Is that something that you you dealt with when you were going with uh, through that the toughest part of grief, just checking out from everything? And yeah, so interestingly, I talk about in the book we had a less severe but still pretty significant to us season. Um, I guess eleven years ago now, when my oldest, uh, my daughter, was born because she was born at twenty six weeks, and we spent a long time in the hospital. And that wrecked me in a lot of ways emotionally. I just shut down. I was angry at God. Um, And I feel like through kind of processing that and counseling and a couple of years after that, I was able to kind of name and recognize that. There's days I still have felt that absolutely in the journey with Elizabeth, but it's been less pronounced. But I think the issue is you get mad at God, right? You feel hurt by God. And that's sort of... I mean, that's because in a sense, God has hurt you, right? I think it's important to validate in some ways those feelings, like the world has worked in a way that is really painful to you. And, you know, God's, you you can't separate that from your walk with God, but that 
maybe this is a bad analogy. This is how I think about it in my brain, though. What you end up doing is sort of like that kid in school that's angry at their teacher. And so they just say, like, you know what, like, I'm just going to make myself miserable, right? <laughs> you know, sort of to get back at you, you know. And so the temptation is just to kind of walk away from God. But of course, then you also lose out on, you know, you know, Peter's like, where else should we go? You have the words of eternal life kind of sense that God is also the source of healing and comfort and life in the middle of that. And so it's a hard place to be, to, to be with God while you're admitting your struggles and anger and hurt, but also while you're kind of finding in him, those things met. But I think when things break down is not when you feel that, but when you, because of that, then just say, I'm just going to walk away from God. I'm just going to, I'm done with this and, and shut down instead. All right. One more question uh, at the end uh, in your chapter. And I, I just love the mental image of this. The chapter is called Walking with Both Legs Broken. That's just, that's such, a, that's just a, such a beautiful mental image, by the way. I love, love, I love your writing. Um, you talk about how God's victory redefines us kind of towards the end of your, your journey with your wife, too. What, what did you mean by that? Yeah. So, so one of the, the just generally true things of human life is that the story that you tell yourself of your life and the story you kind of fit yourself, your life into ends up defining how you live it and how you experience the world and how you move through life. And that's true in little ways, right? Like when you fail in some way, it, you know, is the story one where you're a failure is the story one where like, this is just a challenge to be overcome. But, but theologically that's true on a much deeper level too, in that we need to be invited into the story of Jesus and the whole story of Jesus and kind of see our lives within that whole story of Jesus. And one of the really important pieces of that is that um, the end of the story doesn't remove the hard part in the middle, right? The end of the story doesn't remove the sadness and missing Elizabeth and stuff like that. But you've got to have that sense that the story that this is a part of is one where Jesus has one in the cross, right? Where, you know, the dead will be raised, and you know, and mm -hmm. heaven and earth are made new and death is defeated and destroyed. And, you know, sin and sadness are ultimately undone and God dries every tear. You need all of that, not in a way that short circuits where you are in this story, right? You're kind of in that middle hard place. Um, where you're facing the conflict and the brokenness and the loss, but to say like, nonetheless, this is ultimately where my story is headed and that can kind of keep me moving forward. That's, that's what I think hope really means. Not, not that it sort of like just gets us there now, which would be great, but we're not there, but that we're able to say, I don't know what the next pages hold, but I know what the next chapter holds and the chapters after that. And, um, and especially in the face of death, that's so important, right? To be able to say that death is brutal and hard, but it is not final. It doesn't have the last word that, you know, my wife is not lost to me or to the world forever, that, you know, her beauty and goodness aren't ultimately undone, that it's not this sort of oblivion is just so important to me in terms of how I am able to walk forward with it. I, um, one of my favorite uh, quotes from a book that I actually got tattooed on my shoulder. My wife wrote it on my shoulder and I got it tattooed on it is um, mm. Frederick Buchner and Godric. Um, it, it has the, the main character there. He says, um, what's lost is nothing to what will be found and all the death that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. And I think about that a lot of mornings. So just that, I, you know, the death is big and I feel it, but that life is so much greater. If you've had some difficult conversations lately, there is a moment in those conversations that can change everything. A moment where you can either move toward the other person or away from them. 
It's called The Miracle Moment. And once you discover it, you'll learn how to transform the relationships you have into ones you actually want. And Nicole Eunice is going to help you unlock that next week here on the 32nd Book Club Podcast.